Thank you, Lois. And I'd like to have us uh, turn to our text uh, this morning, which is 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. And we're continuing uh, our sermon series looking at um, the promised land. Um, but really, as we'll see this morning, uh, what we're looking at in this sermon series is the presence of God, because that's what the promised land is all about. And we've been sort of tracing that theme through scripture so far. God was present with his people, the Israelites at Mount Sinai. Then he went with them, uh, with, sent his presence with them in the form of the tabernacle uh, throughout their wilderness wandering. And as we'll see here, he has permanently established that presence with them uh, in the promised land. And just a note, um, a few of you, like I said, have figured out before that I try to memorize every passage that I preach. The reason I do that is just I find that it gets the text in my bones in a deeper way than when I'm just reading it or studying it, and it helps me really understand it in order to preach it well. Um, but as you also heard, uh, I've, I've had a couple other things going on this weekend, and uh, so I didn't get to that part of my prep, which I think I basically just told you means this sermon is going to be pretty bad. So... Um, I'm just going to read it this morning instead of recite it. So 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, and this is what the text says. Then King Solomon summoned into his presence at Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes and the chiefs of the Israelite families, to bring up the ark of the Lord's covenant from Zion, the city of David. All the Israelites came together to King Solomon at the time of the festival in the month of Ethanim, the seventh month. When all the elders of Israel had arrived, the priests took up the ark, and they brought up the ark of the Lord and the tent of meeting and all the sacred furnishings in it. The priests and Levites carried them up, and King Solomon and the entire, entire assembly of Israel that had gathered about him were, and were before the ark were sacrificing so many sheep and cattle that they could not be recorded or counted. Then the priests brought the ark of the Lord's covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark and overshadowed the ark and its carrying poles. And these poles were so long that their ends could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but not from outside the holy place, and they are still there today. <clears throat> there was nothing in the ark except the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb, which is also Mount Sinai where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, um, as I think many of you know, our family recently moved uh, into our new house uh, right here in the neighborhood. And that's a, a big process. I've already told Sarah that we're never moving again, um, so you're, you're stuck with us. Um, after all, it takes a lot of work to move, right? First, you've got to disassemble everything and um, pack it all up, get it ready to go. Then you've got to carry it all out, load it up into a couple of cars or a pod or a truck, stuff like that, and Tetris it all together so that it'll fit in there. Then you've got to remember to do things like turn off the utilities and forward your mail. And that's just the moving out process. And that's work in and of itself. That's enough work in and of itself. But settling into a new place 
Maybe it's just because we're currently going through that right now, but I would argue that that's even more involved. Um, you know, the first thing, obviously, that you have to do is you have to get everything in, and you've got to start to arrange it all in the space, right? But then as you're doing that, you find out that some of it doesn't quite fit. It doesn't quite work. You know, that piece of furniture that used to work really well in your old place, it's not really going to work in the new one, and so you need to get rid of that. You've got to go shopping for a new uh, piece of furniture, whatever it is. And then after that, you start noticing all of the different things in the house that need fixing, right? That one door squeaks that outlet is dead, needs replacing, you know, that paint, that wall needs some paint. Um, and then finally, after a couple of years, just about the time that you finish it all, it's time to move again, right? The point is that it takes a while to make a house a home. It takes some time to settle in. It takes a bit to feel comfortable, to feel like it's your house, to feel like it's where you belong. And as strange as this may sound, in our text for this morning, that's actually what we see God doing too. After years of roughing it, if you will, in a tent and living on the move with his people, the Israelites, as they wandered around the wilderness, God is finally settling down. His people have built him a house and now he's going to move into it. He's going to make that house his home. He's going to move in among his people, dwell with them, and live permanently with them right there in their midst. You see, generations uh, before this passage, God had promised to give the Israelites a land. In Genesis 17, verses 7 through 8, God said to Abraham, one of their ancestors, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Now in the context of those uh, verses, it's important to remember that Abraham was a nomad, okay? He was a wanderer. Today we might call him a migrant. He'd moved away from his home country of Ur, and he no longer had a country of his own. And so that's why these verses refer to him as a foreigner, because he wasn't from the land where he was living. And in that time and culture, that was a pretty big deal, Okay, people back then didn't move around uh, quite as much as people do today. Instead, they stayed close. They stayed close to their family. They stayed close to where they grew up, close to their roots, and that's how things worked. People didn't really set out on their own or try to blaze their own path. Instead, they stayed put. And if they didn't, if they did happen to choose to, to leave their hometown or their home country, then chances were that that was the last time that they would ever really feel at home again. That's because it wasn't easy to fit into a new community in that time and culture. And that can still be the case today, but it was even more so the case back then. After leaving Ur, no matter where he ended up or however long he stayed there, Abraham would have always been viewed as the foreigner. He would have always been seen as the stranger. He would have always, in a very real sense, have felt homeless. And the same thing was true for his descendants, for the Israelites. You see, after Abraham died, a couple generations of them stayed in that land where he had been living as a foreigner, the land of Canaan. But as we saw during our recent sermon series on Exodus, um, after a few generations, they immigrated to the land of Egypt and they ended up staying there for 400 years. Even after God brought them out, though, they still weren't home. 
because then they ended up wandering around the wilderness for 40 more years after that. And so just like their ancestor Abraham, they had no place to settle, no place to call their own, no place to call home until now. Because eventually God brought that wandering nomadic group of people back to the land that Abraham had been a foreigner in, back to the land that that God had promised him would be his and his descendants after him, back to the land of Canaan. And once there, God empowered the Israelites to take it over it, to conquer it, and to make it their own. He gave it to them, as those verses from Genesis said, as an everlasting possession. It would be a place for them to live, a place for them to flourish and thrive, a place for them to experience all the blessings that God had promised would be theirs. And that's a pretty good deal, right? After years, generations, centuries even of being homeless, the Israelites finally have a home of their own. And yet, as good as that is, that's not really the full picture of the promised land. You see, there's more to the promised land and why God gives it to the Israelites, a lot more, in fact, than it just being a nice place for the Israelites to live. It's not just a a respite for them, a nice place for them to retreat, a place for them to rest safe and secure from their enemies. That's part of why God gives them the land, but it's not all of it. Because the fact of the matter is that the Israelites weren't going to have the land all to themselves. Instead, they were going to have to share it. Someone else was actually going to move into the land with them. Someone else was going to be there in their midst. Someone else was going to live with them. And that someone else was God. You see, that's actually the whole point and purpose of the promised land in scripture. It was meant to be a place that the Israelites could call their their own, could make their home, could settle in and settle down, yes, but it was also more than that because it was meant to be the place where God himself would live with them and be present with them in an ongoing, permanent way. And that's different, I think, from how we usually think about the promised land. At least it was different from how I used to think about the promised land. You know, I remember uh, being a kid and learning about the promised land um, in my Sunday school classes at church or I attended a Christian grade school and I remember learning about it in my Bible classes there as well. And I remember thinking that it must have been the most perfect place on earth. I remember imagining the promised land as this lush, beautiful paradise. And I remember picturing it as the sort of place where you'd want to go on vacation. After all, that's the way that the Bible describes it. Scripture, when it talks about Canaan, it describes it as a land flowing with milk and honey. In other words, it was a land where where things were good and there were plenty of those good things to go around. It was a land of abundance and blessing. And so I remember thinking that that must have been why God wanted to give it to the Israelites. Because as his chosen people, as the people that he loved, he must have wanted them to have the best place on earth to live. But if that was the case, I'll be honest with you, I don't think God got it quite right, okay? Because I've actually been there. I've been to Israel and Palestine. I spent uh, about a month there back in 2011. And it's fine, okay? It's nice, it's got some cool features, it's an interesting place to visit. It's certainly different than the sorts of places that we're used to here in the Midwest of the United States. Um, But it doesn't seem like it's the best place on earth. Instead, if that had been God's goal, to give the Israelites the best place on earth, then I have to think he would have brought them to New Zealand, okay? (laughs) 
I haven't been there, but I have watched all of the Lord of the Rings movies, which were filmed there. And just from watching those movies, I've got to think that's the best place on earth, okay? Just looks beautiful. Uh, It certainly seems better than the land of Palestine, the land of Israel, what used to be Canaan. And yet, that's not where God took the Israelites. He didn't take them to New Zealand or Tahiti or Bora Bora or any of the other exotic, wonderful, beautiful places that we like to dream of traveling to. Instead, he did take them to Canaan. And that's because real estate wasn't the point. It wasn't the point of the promised land. God's presence was the point. According to scripture, that's why God gave the Israelites a land. It was a place for them to live and flourish, yes. A place for them to enjoy and be thankful. A place for them to settle and finally call home. But not because of how great or how wonderful the land itself was. Instead, it's because that's where he, God, was going to live too. And so when you think about it from that perspective, just about any land would have done. Because the point wasn't the land itself. The point was God was going to come and live with his people. And that's what we see happen here in this text. God's people have moved into the land he's given them. In fact, they actually moved in a couple generations before this. But now here in our passage, God moves in too. He takes up residence with his people. He comes here among them, enters the temple that they've built him, and makes their home, his home as well. And that should sound familiar. If you spent time with scripture, that should ring a bell, especially if you've read the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, it should remind you of something. You see, this isn't the first time, 1 Kings chapter eight, that God has ever dwelt with his people this way. It's not the first time that he's lived here in our midst as human beings. It's not the the first time that he's made a part of this creation his home. He's actually done that before. Right at the very start, in fact. Right at the beginning, right after he fashioned everything together and made his world, right after he created everything, God did something similar. Just like we see him make the temple his home here in this text, God once made another place in this world his home. He'd once dwelt somewhere else among us as his people. He'd once lived in that same sort of close relationship with us before. In fact, he'd even gone so far as to share the same space with us, just like he does here with the Israelites in this text. You know when that was? It was the Garden of Eden. After completing his work of creation, the picture that scripture gives us is of God resting with the first people, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden in a close, personal relationship with them. In fact, scripture even goes so far as to say that God would walk and talk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, just like how we might go and walk and talk with a friend or a close family member around our neighborhood. Before the fall, before our sin, before all the consequences of our rejection of God, That's what our relationship with him was like. That's what he meant it to be like. He lived among us, dwelling with us in the creation he'd made and filling our lives with his nearness, his presence, his closeness. Because of our sin, we lost that closeness and presence of God. And yet, what do we see here in this text? 
We see God's glory descending on and filling his temple, right? We see God moving into the promised land among his people. We see his presence among his people restored. In other words, what we're supposed to see here in this text is a reversal, at least partially, of the effects of the fall. It's almost like, not quite, but almost like we're going back to the Garden of Eden itself. In fact, if you read the description of the temple, that's part of why you see so much garden imagery in the way it was built. We didn't read all of this, but the chapters before this one describe the design and construction of the temple, specifically chapter six and then the second half of chapter seven. And both of them are chock full of imagery that is meant to remind us of a garden. Just listen as I run through some of this, okay? And you can read it later for yourselves uh, later on today. But for starters, when you first approach the temple in Jerusalem, the giant pillars at its entrance, one of the first things that you would see of the building itself, had rings of pomegranates carved around the top. And then the capitals at the very top of those pillars were made to look like leaves, like lilies, actually. Just past them, the main doors were made of olive wood and they were hung on hinges that were also made to look like leaves. Inside, the floor of the temple was lined with juniper wood and the walls of the main room, also known as the holy place, were covered with cedar planks. In the inner sanctuary, in the most holy place, those planks were overlaid with gold. And then throughout the temple, both inside the building and also outside on its exterior, the walls were carved with images of angels, palm trees, flowers, and gourds. And many of the furnishings and utensils that were used in the sacrifices and other work at the temple were also decorated to look like various kinds of flowers, trees, and fruit as well. And so in short, with all of this imagery of wood, flowers, fruit, and plants, when you stepped into the temple, it was made to look like you were actually stepping instead into a garden. And in a sense, that's because you were. As God's dwelling place, stepping into the temple was like stepping into a garden because it was like stepping into the garden, the Garden of Eden. It was meant to give you the sense that you were actually stepping back in time into the Garden of Eden itself when God had first created it. In other words, it was like you were stepping back into his presence the way that he had meant us to experience it as human beings in the beginning. You know how sometimes people like to say, it's like heaven on earth. They go and visit Colorado and they say, oh, you've just got to go there. It's like heaven on earth there. Or they come back from Hawaii and they say, it's like heaven on earth, it's just so beautiful. Or they grow up in West Michigan and for whatever reason they think this is heaven on earth. Which by the way, only West Michiganders think, okay? It's nice here, it's no New Zealand. Um, Thank you for laughing at that. It means I haven't offended you too much. It's like heaven on earth. You know what the temple actually was? The temple actually was heaven on earth. It was heaven on earth first because it was supposed to remind us of what heaven on earth was like in the beginning before we fell into sin. But it was also heaven on earth in the sense that it was where God dwelled with his people again. That's the point and purpose of the temple in the Old Testament. In fact, it's the point and purpose of the entire promised land that God gave to the Israelites. God brought Israel to Canaan and settled them there, not because it's the best piece of property on the planet, 
It's not because it's the greatest strip of real estate in the world. It's not because it's the best place on earth. Instead, God promised and gave the Israelites the land of Canaan because that's where he was going to dwell among them once more. The Israelites move into the land of Canaan, but God moves in with them. That's what we see. And it's a sign, a hint, a bit of foreshadowing of what's eventually to come. And in his first letter to the early church, the apostle Peter writes about that. He writes about what's still to come. He writes about the new temple that God would eventually build through his son, Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 2, verses four through five, the apostle Peter writes this about Jesus. As you come to him, the living stone, Rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I don't know if you caught them, they kind of go by a little quick there, but Peter mentions a few key phrases in those verses. First, he writes about a spiritual house. Then he talks about a holy priesthood, and then finally he references sacrifices acceptable to God. Where do you think that his readers, some of whom would have been first century Jewish converts to Christianity, would have maybe heard or seen those phrases before? A spiritual house, priests, sacrifices. They would have seen them at the temple, right? After all, that's what the temple was. It was a spiritual house. And as a spiritual house, it had priests who served there. And one of the main parts of those priests' work and ministry in the temple was to offer sacrifices. And yet, what does Peter say to these early Christians he's writing to? What does he tell them about the temple? How does he describe it? Well, in essence, what he says is, you, you have become that temple. You are now the living stones that God uses to build it. You are the holy priesthood that serves there and you are the ones who are offering sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In other words, what Peter is telling the first Christians as well as all of us as Christians today is that it's no longer the temple in Jerusalem where God dwells. It's no longer some stretch of geography somewhere in the Middle East where he resides with his people. It's no longer the promised land that God has made his home. Instead, it's us. The fact is that God no longer dwells in a house of stone and wood someplace. He no longer dwells only in one place in the world, accessible only to one group of people, only at one point in history. He no longer dwells in certain spaces around the world that we might call sacred or holy. Instead, what Peter is telling us here and what scripture teaches is that God dwells here, in us through the Holy Spirit in our very hearts. I remember trying to explain that to someone a few years ago. His name was Benjamin, and we met uh, in the likeliest of places in the Spirit Airlines check-in line at O'Hare International Airport. We were both headed to Peru, and he asked me why I was going there, and I said to visit Machu Picchu, which is one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And he said, really? Me too. And then with a question that should have tipped me off to what my relationship with Benjamin was going to be like over the next couple of days, he asked, are you too going there to sit with the shamans in the sacred valley? And after taking a moment to think about that question, I said, no. Uh, My sister lives in Peru right now, and we're just going to Machu Picchu as tourists. 
I didn't even know there were shamans there, I added. That didn't deter Benjamin, though, because he proceeded to spend the next 45 minutes we were in line together telling me all about the sacred valley that surrounds Machu Picchu, the shamans who live there in the jungle, and the hallucinogenic tea that they use to help pilgrims like Benjamin achieve enlightenment. You should try it, he said. I told him I'd think about it. Since we were both traveling by ourselves, Benjamin and I decided to become travel buddies, which mainly meant that we watched each other's luggage when one of us went to the bathroom, we shared our meals together, and we talked about the different things that we were each reading. And it was during one of those meals, a lunch that we were sharing in the Fort Lauderdale airport during our layover, that Benjamin said to me, look at this, I want to show you something. He'd been intently studying a map for the last few minutes, and he pulled it between us so that I could see. On the map was an island. This is where I was conceived, Benjamin told me. Apart from wondering how he knew that bit of information, (laughs) I wondered where this was going. I didn't have to wonder long. My shaman in the Sacred Valley emailed me last week, he said, and as I wondered how good his shaman's Wi-Fi was in the Sacred Valley, he continued. He told me to research where I was conceived in preparation for my time with him in the jungle. He told me that it would reveal who my earth mother or earth father is. Doesn't this island look like it's shaped like a seahorse? I think my earth father is a seahorse. I'm not making this up, by the way. (laughs) This is an actual conversation that I actually had with an actual person who was actually named Benjamin in the Fort Lauderdale airport on our way to Peru in early 2014. And there's more to the story, too. I don't have time this morning to tell you all about the medallion with the power of the angels, the protective spirit necklace Benjamin wore, or what happened when I decided to give him my copy of the, uh, the sayings of the Desert Fathers, which is a collection of teachings uh, from the early Christian monks. I just figured he needed it more than I did. Um, instead, I'll, I'll just tell you what Benjamin told me after I finally asked him why all of this stuff, why Machu Picchu and the Sacred Valley and the shamans and his seahorse earth father, why it all mattered to him. Because it's holy, he said. Machu Picchu is a holy place. I've been there before and you just feel closer to God when you're there. That's why I keep going back because every time I leave, I lose that sense of God's nearness, his presence, his closeness. But when I'm there, I just feel like I'm surrounded by it. He paused for a moment and then he asked me a question. You said you're only going to Machu Picchu as a tourist, but don't you want to experience that? And I thought about it for a moment, and then I said to him, no, Benjamin, because the truth is I already feel like I experienced that. I'm a Christian, and so I don't only feel close to God in certain places, under certain circumstances, or when I experience certain things. Instead, I feel that closeness to God when I gather with other Christians in worship, when I read his word, when I pray, even sometimes in mundane moments when I'm just going about my day-to-day life. I feel close to God in those moments because I don't believe God only resides in certain sacred places or in a sacred valley or even in a sacred sanctuary. I don't believe we box him in that way. Instead, I believe he resides right here in me through his spirit. And I'm not sure what Benjamin did with that. 
Uh, he ended up uh, sharing the hostel my sister, her friend, and I were staying in during our first night in Peru, and we exchanged emails the next morning before we left, but he never responded to the message that I sent him. I still pray for him sometimes, though. And sometimes I like to imagine him in a church somewhere experiencing what I tried to tell him about, worshiping with God's people and experiencing the nearness and presence of God that he yearned for, but that only comes through knowing Jesus Christ. You see, that is why we can believe everything that we're talking about this morning. That is why we can truly experience God's presence as Christian believers That's why Peter can say that we are actually the living stones of God's temple today. That's why we can believe that God actually dwells within us through his Holy Spirit. We believe all of that because of Jesus Christ, which of course brings us to the gospel this morning. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, something happened in that temple in Jerusalem. Like we said earlier, there were two main rooms in the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, The first one, the main one that you would enter if you went inside was called the holy place. And that's, again, where the priests and Levites would go about their day-to-day ministry in the temple. And only they were allowed there that the average congregant had to stay outside the temple. But beyond the holy place, there was another room. And again, we said earlier that it was called the most holy place. And those two rooms were separated by a curtain It hung all the way across the width of the temple from left to right and all the way from the top to the bottom, marking those two rooms as separate from each other. And although the priests and servants of the temple were allowed in that first room in the holy place, they weren't allowed in the most holy place. Only one person was allowed there, the high priest. And even then, only one day out of the year, the Day of Atonement. And the rest of the time, that curtain hung there, separating the most holy place from the holy place, really separating the most holy place from all the rest of the world. And the reason was because that's where the Jewish people believed God's glory was. That's the part of the temple that he dwelled in, the most holy place. When he descends on the temple here in 1 Kings 8, that's the part of the temple that he descended to. And so no one could go there. No one could go into God's presence. No one could share that space with God. And yet what happens to that space when Jesus died? Matthew 27 verse 51 says, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Suddenly everything changes. God is no longer just behind the curtain. He's no longer just in the temple in Jerusalem. His presence is no longer just in the promised land with the Israelites. Instead, it's out in his world again. It's here among us. It's anywhere that we as his people today choose to go because we bring his presence with us. That's what the the torn curtain signifies. Okay? That's what Peter means when he says that we're God's temple today. He means that because of what Jesus Christ has done, we are no longer alienated from God, no longer separated from him, no longer forced to only experience his presence in small doses here or there or at certain sacred places around the world. Instead, we are his temple now. We are where he dwells and we get to experience his presence again just like he created us to in the beginning. 
That's the restoration, the redemption, the salvation that Jesus Christ makes possible. And that's the relationship that we can experience with our God once again because of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with us? Lord God, we thank you that you are no longer boxed in at only certain holy or sacred places around the world where we have to go and pilgrimage and visit you. But instead that you are present with us each and every day. We're sinful people. This shouldn't be possible and yet because of Jesus Christ it is. And you reside with us. You are near to us. You are present in us through your Holy Spirit. Thank you for that wonderful grace. And we pray this in the name of your Son who makes it all possible. Jesus Christ, amen.